Welcome to the Breaking Stars podcast, where we teach you the skills you need in order to ride the tech wave so you don't get hit by it. Some people call this wave the fourth industrial revolution. Other people call this the future of work. But I actually don't think that wave is the right word because this episode is fire featuring the Congressional Black Caucus. In fact, it's a little after 8 p.m. on a Sunday and I'm sitting in front of our fireplace in our new office in Soma next to the Pinterest and Airbnb building thinking about all of the fireside chats that lead to nothing and I'm excited because during this conversation we actually focus on action items that lead to results. I'm also sipping tea right now because my voice is a little bit hoarse because this is the first time that I've moderated over 10 people on the podcast at the same time talking about these issues. And for those of you that don't know about what the Congressional Black Caucus has been up to, the Tech 2020 initiative brings together the best minds in tech, nonprofit, education, and public sectors to chart a path forward to increase African-American inclusion at all levels of the technology industry. Since the launch of the Tech 2020 initiative, things have happened like the former CEO of American Express joining the boards of Airbnb and Facebook, CEO of TaskRabbit joining the board of HP, CEO of BET joining the board of Twitter, and all kinds of other amazing things. And the last time that we moderated this episode or this round, these roundtables, uh, we hosted it at Hustle. But this time, we hosted it in Oakland at Merritt College at the Barbara Lee Allied Health Building, uh, where uh, several organizations were represented, like the Chancellor for All California Community Colleges, representing over 115 114 schools and 2 million people, but also we had the CEO of Hack Reactor and other podcast guests that have been on the show before, um, including new names like the CEO of Black Girls Code. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing episode, and if this is the first time that you've ever heard the show, please feel free to share it with your friends and tell them what's going on, like the page. Without further ado, let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10x. everybody, my name is Ruben Harris, co-founder of Breaking Startups, and I'm excited to welcome you all to another roundtable with the Congressional Black Caucus here in Oakland at the Barbara Lee Allied Health Building in Merritt College to talk about the Tech 2020 initiative. Well, we're going to talk about upholding our promise to black students today to give them a better tomorrow, but first I'm going to give the floor to Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Thank you very much, Ruben, and thank all of you for being here today, and, and I'll be very brief because we want to hear from you. Uh, as it relates to uh, inclusion, African-American inclusion in the entire tech sector, specifically around workforce development and, and skills training. And I have to just say uh, it's really very um, important that community colleges especially be part of the discussion because we've visited many tech companies and we know that now they're beginning to think of community colleges as in addition to HBCUs as part of their STEM education. 
we, and this is just one point I want to make that you need to be aware of, is that in this last budget bill, we were able to secure uh, in new money $50 million for, uh, and that's a drop in the bucket, but it's the beginning of what we're trying to get to is $250 million for computer science for all, and that's primarily for STEAM education, for uh, girls, for underrepresented minorities, and for those uh, living below the poverty line. And so we'll be working with the Department of Education as they come up with their uh, regulations on this, but we would love your input into how you think that uh, community colleges and, and the space that you work in can be part of this new effort. So I'd like to recognize my colleagues uh, who are with me today, and I really am thankful that they're here because they work day and night on so many issues, and to take two days out of their busy schedule is remarkable, but I think it, it speaks volumes to their dedication to what our mission is. Congressman uh, G.K. Butterfield, who's the co-chair of the Tech 2020 Initiative, which was actually started when he was the uh, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, primarily focused on inclusion and equity as it relates to African-American in all aspects of the tech sector. From uh, North Carolina, also serves on the Energy and Commerce Committee. Thank you, Congresswoman, and good afternoon to all of you. Thank you for coming out this afternoon. I'm looking forward to a great uh, conversation about the issues that we all care about so much. Uh, we're not here today in our individual capacities as members of Congress. We are here representing the 49 members of the Congressional Black Caucus. There's no issue more important to the CBC than the issue of diversity and inclusion in corporate America. When you look at the Fortune 500 companies, you will see that collectively their gross revenue exceeds $12 trillion. And so we are determined to, to challenge these companies and to demand of these companies that they, they become more responsive and more inclusive when, in their workforce and not just the workforce, but their supplier uh, program as well. And so we're here today representing 49 members of the caucus. Collectively, we represent more than 20 million African-Americans directly and 40 million African-Americans indirectly. Our constituents, African-American citizens in this country are looking to us for leadership, and we're here this weekend, this week, and in past visits to, we started saying request, but now we're at the level of demanding that technology companies be more responsive to black America. Thank you for receiving us. Congresswoman Maxine Waters from Southern California, who's actually our ranking member on the Financial Services Committee, who's been such a leader in on racial and minority inclusion on every aspect, not only of the financial services sector, but every aspect of our daily lives when it comes to making sure that uh, America works for everybody. Thank, thank you very sir. much, uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Uh, I'd like to thank you for your leadership and for organizing uh, this effort today to bring us here to talk about what is going on in uh, the high-tech community. I'm hopeful that I will be able to help develop some public policy that will not only deal with the cybersecurity uh, issues that we have in the Financial Services Committee, uh, but also uh, because we are dealing with um, all of Wall Street, all of the banks uh, of America, the financial institutions, how we can develop public policy that perhaps can assist in providing startup capital and assisting those who may have some joint venture opportunities. 
African-Americans need to be assisted, uh, supported, not discriminated against, not only in the high-tech community, but also in the financial services community. And so I think there will be some public policy opportunities that we will be presented with that can help uh, move this issue forward. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Congressman uh, Gregory Meeks from uh, New York, who serves also as a senior member of the Financial Services Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee, and who has been a leader in racial, as it relates to racial equity in the, uh, I'd say in the private sector, but also uh, in fintech and really fighting for the inclusion of African-Americans in all aspects of this uh, tech sector. So thank you again, Greg. Thank you, and I'm delighted to be here and want to listen to, to you because you are going to be the key uh, to as we move forward and make sure that doors are open and playing fields are level. You know, we are about to enter, or we are in, we have entered into a new economy. We are transitioning. We once were as an agricultural society. We went into a manufacturing society, and we are now in a technological and service, particularly financial service economy. And so we better make sure that that playing field and those doors are open for all, because if you open the doors and have a level playing field, you will see that not only will we participate as consumers, we will be leaders in this industry. And that's what it's about so that we can create opportunities. We can end some of the wealth disparities. We can create wealth in the African-American communities, uh, which will make this place, this city, this nation, a better place. And since you are on the ground and you will know, you know, the, and have the expertise on how we can get those that have been left out, those opportunities. I close with, there has not been an institution in this country that has, that once it was open, that African-Americans have not gone, uh, send it straight to the top to make sure it got its fair share. So now is the time for us to open those doors and to make sure that the playing field is level. I'm delighted to be here. Look forward to hearing from you. I want to thank President Byrne and Chancellor Gear for really opening the space again for us because this is a very important discussion, dialogue. It's historic, and we're going to make some progress. We're happy to do so. Thank you very much. So today we're going to talk about the jobs that are going to be wiped away by technology, but also what we can do to prepare for that. Um, the good news is that those jobs are going to be replaced. The bad news is that they're going to acquire technical skills that most people don't have, which is why we invited today's panelists to share how they're actively working to address these issues. Before our discussion, I would like to set the stage. As Congresswoman Barbara Lee mentioned, uh, we are in California, where California Community College is the largest system of higher education in the nation, with over 2 million students attending about 114 colleges. Student debt is now at about $1.34 trillion and affects about 44 million Americans. Half of today's work activities could be wiped away by 2055. 166 million workers in the United States are going to have to switch careers or gain new skills by 2030. Although the country is experiencing low levels of unemployment, low-wage work that features little job security has shaped the rise in employment in the past decades. And the overwhelming majority of Black and Latino workers in the tech sector start out in blue-collar jobs. So really quickly, uh, why don't we start off with some quick introductions uh, with Kimberly tomorrow. Good afternoon. Can you hear me? My name is Kimberly Bryant. I'm the founder and CEO of Black Girls Code. We're a nonprofit organization founded right here in the Bay Area. Our focus is really to address the issue of diversity and inclusion through the lens of African-American girls and women. We work with girls as young as seven. We keep 
working with them until they're 17. Really, our goal is to introduce them to every aspect of the technology industry from development to entrepreneurship to virtual VC culture, finance, et cetera, to create this next generation of leaders in the field. Um, so we consider ourselves a pipeline organization and really working to build the next workforce of the future and making sure that women and girls of color are equally represented as we move into this next generation. Hello, um, this is um, my name is Derek Lee with Pilot City. Um, we are a local organization based in San Leandro, California. Uh, we are uh, working with Alameda County Office of Education on career pathway oriented programming uh, called Workforce Incubators. And we are partnering with tech companies, uh, mostly in virtual reality, Internet of Things, robotics, drones, 3D printing, all the exciting new things going on in the world. And we're having them partner in and actually work with uh, students directly in the classroom uh, and have those students create projects through project based learning. That would then lead them into actually having a portfolio project that would, they would be able to get hired from uh, for internships. And we are working with a spectrum of students, all the way from Oakland, Alameda, uh, Hayward, San Leandro, uh, West Contra Costa to, uh, to Fremont. And so we got a whole spectrum of students. About 30% of our students are alternative education students based in uh, continuing education uh, environments. And we're really excited about working with... Just the spectrum of students we have and how to build the next system that's an engine in building our communities from within our, our cities. Uh, so we're very excited about being here and I appreciate it. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Carmen Rojas. Um, I'm the co-founder and CEO of an organization called The Workers Lab. We are found, uh, co-founded with the Service Employees International Union to find new ways to build power for workers beyond collective bargaining so we give entrepreneurs and worker, organize, worker organizers, frankly, just give them money for a year and help them try to find new ways to organize workers to increase their voice, to understand and engage with new parts of the economy that they otherwise wouldn't be able to, and to think about what the future of work is going to look like connected to the present and to the past of work. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Sean Drost, and I'm a co-founder of Hack Reactor uh, School for Software Engineering. Uh, we teach students from a lot of different uh, backgrounds, but non-traditional, non-CS students, adult learners. We teach uh, our students to code and help them get their first job in software engineering. We uh, do a lot of work in uh, diversity and inclusion. The Obama administration started an effort called Tech Hire and uh, in partnership with TechHire, we uh, launched a school out in Oakland focused on helping bring black and brown students into the software field. And we uh, have a lot of thoughts about uh, the last mile of education and helping students move into this industry. Hello, my name is Michael Ellison. I'm the CEO and founder of CodePath.org. CodePath.org was created in order to scale the number of high-performing underrepresented software engineers specifically by fixing the dropout crisis we see in higher education for underrepresented minorities. We partner with major tech companies like Facebook, create courses, and get those courses offered for academic credit at colleges and universities. Uh, we're in over a dozen colleges and universities for academic credit right now. We have courses that are student-led here at Merritt College. We have courses offered for academic credit for City University of New York. And uh, we recently partnered with a couple of major tech companies, including Facebook, to expand to over 100 colleges and universities over the next uh, four or five years. Good afternoon. My name is Kevin Nichols. I am the founder and CEO 
of the social engineering project. It's basically an Oakland-based Google and Microsoft-funded social impact venture with Stanford University designed to address the lack of diversity in the tech industry. The, the term social engineering comes from a quote from Charles Hamilton Houston, who said, a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. So although everyone doesn't have to be a lawyer, our goal really is to get young people interested in math and science. So if you can get past Math 1A, Chemistry 1A, or Physics 1A, you might be able to go to college and major in something other than sociology. Our goal is to get students to go to college and hopefully have as many opportunities as they can to be successful. Good afternoon. My name is Emily Schaefer, and I'm the executive director of Year Up Bay Area. Year Up's a national organization working to connect the talented young people in our communities to opportunities that fuel our economy. We work with opportunity youth, age 18 to 24, who don't otherwise have access to post-secondary education, college, or a professional career. We have a one-year program with which we partner with community colleges to provide very focused skills-based education with a clear technical pathway powerful professional skills, and then business communication skills. After six months of training, students do a six-month internship at some of 250-plus corporate partners across the country, like J.P. Morgan Chase, American Express, Salesforce.com, Facebook, Kaiser, and some of the biggest companies across the country. In one year, young people with a self-reported income between eight and $10,000 are making $40,000 a year. 85% of them are in roles that are directly connected to the internship experience, and 98% of our students are young people of color. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Eli Kennedy. I'm the CEO of the Level Playing Field Institute. Uh, we have a program called the Summer Math and Science Honors Academy. Uh, it's entirely focused on empowering young people, young high school students of color, and helping them excel in STEM. It's a deep investment program. It's really different than anything else that's out there. We offer over a thousand hours of education across a high school student's career. It's a holistic approach that not only is about bolstering their academic skills, but also uh, showing them how to excel in spaces that are really different than the ones they're in now. So helping them know how to navigate the technical environments and the work environments, helping them to know how to be the only uh, in a school of engineering like Cal Poly or uh, MIT or Harvard. Uh, so we serve, our, our students are predominantly low income, about 80% are low income, 75% are first generation college students, or will be first generation college students. Uh, nearly 100% will attend four year colleges, about half will attend the top 50 colleges, the top 1% of colleges in the nation. So that's our work. We also have a, uh, an internship program that we're piloting this year in partnership with Pandora, IDEO, and the Canary Research Center at Stanford, which is an early, uh, early detection cancer research center at Stanford. Good afternoon. I'm William Rogers. I'm the CEO of Goodwill Industries in San Francisco, Marin San Mateo. We employ about 650 people, most of whom, about 90% 90, 90 of whom, um, have barriers to employment, meaning formerly incarcerated folks with low skilled levels, low education levels, et cetera. And what we're doing is we're getting the folks after they have not necessarily um, had success in um, K through 12 or have gone to prison. And we are um, working on uh, technical career pathways for those individuals. So um, we employ about, as I said, about 650 people of those 650 people, 
we have now partnerships with uh, Google, with Microsoft. Um, Microsoft is going to co-brand with us in our new space so that we can have actually a state-of-the-art training center. And what we want to do is we want to help folks who, or what we do is we help folks who um, would otherwise not be employable um, by many standards. And I will tell you that even in lots of our conversations with tech companies, you can say, look, this person has gotten their N plus, S plus, and A plus certifications, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but they will not be hired because they have a felon. And that might be a drug felony from 10 years ago. So I think that what I want to just, I want to make sure that we don't forget here is that there are also the parents of the children who are in um, school now and what their children see their parents doing. But these are also folks who are kids who this, the, the, the system has failed. And um, we need to make sure that uh, that is part of the uh, the group of, of people in this country who have been shut out of the workforce and we need to be considering. Hi, my name is Sashi Jain. I'm the co-founder of techria.org. Um, we're a community for Latinx people in the tech industry. We started because my co-founder and I one day came to the realization that we didn't know any other Latino engineers in the Bay Area. Um, since then, we've expanded out from the Bay Area to Los Angeles and now New York. And we have an online community where people use us as a resource to find jobs and to um, learn new skills. Hello, my name is Idaline Bobe, and I'm the founder of techactivist.org. What we do is prepare our communities for 21st century defense self-defense skills. We teach political education and tech training tools to poor working class communities so they understand what is being made in Silicon Valley and how would that impact them, their benefits, um, and different things that they're up against. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Elora Ortiz Oakley and uh, uh, welcome to all of you. Uh, I have the pleasure of being the Chancellor of the California Community Colleges, the largest system of higher education in the nation and certainly the gateway to higher education for the majority of students of color in California. To give you an idea of, of the scope of the California Community College system, nearly one in four of every community college student in the nation is a California Community College student. So we feel that uh, our work is not only impactful to the state of California and its future, but to the nation, uh, primarily because of our size, but also because we are the gateway to um, Latino, uh, African-American, all students of color, as well as low-income students. So we're very much focused on the issues that are on the table. Um, and, and I can talk to you all afternoon about what we're doing, but uh, let me just say that uh, we're focused primarily on, on two parts of this pipeline. One is the pipeline of from K through 16 and beyond. Uh, we don't see that um, that there is a point of talking about K through 12 anymore because a high school diploma can no longer get you into the workforce in any meaningful way. So we want to extend the conversation beyond a high school diploma, blur that line, and really focus on getting our students to get a quality post-secondary credential. Beyond that, we're also uh, focused on the incumbent workforce. We have over 8.5 million working adults in the California workforce between the ages of 25 and 62 that only have a high school diploma or some college. This is a very vulnerable population. Uh, the future of work, the changes that are happening today because of automation and AI, machine learning are devastating this workforce. And unless we can find a way to upskill them or reskill them, then we have lost an entire workforce. And 
Without uh, a livable wage, these individuals have a hard time raising families that can then participate in our public education system. So we see this as both a pipeline issue and an existing incumbent workforce issue to provide them the, the skills they need in this current economy so that they can not only survive, but thrive. And of course, our workforce, as you can well imagine, is brown and black. So beyond that, I spend my days um, trying to convince a very hostile administration so why community colleges are important and why brown and black students are the future of this nation. So thank you. Thank you, everyone. Uh, so as you all know, there's going to be a massive labor shift over the next five to 10 years that's going to require an educational infrastructure, not just for entry-level jobs, but also for mid- to senior-level jobs as well. I think it'd be great to um, start off the conversation actually with, with Eloy uh, to talk a little bit more about some of the things that the traditional education system is doing to keep up with the pace of technology. I think you're doing something with the 115th college. Is that correct? Yes. So um, as you can well imagine, there there is a tremendous amount of activity trying to reimagine our uh, traditional public education infrastructure to better match the needs of not only today's students, but but the workforce. And so whether it's um, the transformation that ASU has seen or the uh, creation of <clears throat> competency-based education models throughout the country to try and better serve adult learners, the California community colleges are right now trying to reimagine how we deliver education to a greater number of individuals through the use of technology. And so Governor Brown has proposed the creation of the 115th college to be completely tech-enabled, online, competency-based, targeted at skill acquisition for the adult workforce. Uh, as you can imagine, this has caused some uh, consternation in California, uh, as it should. We need to begin to question, are uh, the models on the table sufficient to deal with the needs of, of this workforce? We feel, my team feels that they are not that we need to lay an infrastructure now in order to deal with the changes that are happening in the workforce, both in terms of the tech sector, but more importantly, every sector is becoming a tech sector. Every sector is using uh, machine learning, is using you know, much more uh, automated methods of deploying resources. And so unless our incumbent workforce is better trained, we need to uh, consider what that's going to mean to our future. So we just uh, launched a partnership with SCIU uh, to begin our, our first foray into this area with um, the healthcare workers under UHW. These are some very vulnerable individuals because of the changes that are happening in healthcare alone. So um, anything that um, the Congressional Black Caucus can do to help support this kind of training, uh, this kind of education, and things like short-term Pell would significantly help us deliver this kind of education to these, this workforce, helping us better communicate to the uh, Department of Education, the administration, the need to invest in workforce training. And if there's an infrastructure package, we need to ensure that the workers that are in the workforce today have the means to be upskilled or reskilled in order so that they can participate in the investment that we finally make in, in infrastructure. Because all these fields require some sort of technical training. And so we can certainly uh, talk more about the current pipeline and doing more to support African-American students to get into the tech sector. And that is something that we need to continue to do. 
Uh, but we need to do it at both ends. Otherwise, the workforce that we have today is going to continue to get displaced, and those families are going to continue to suffer. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so in addition to traditional education, there's also this phenomenon of, of vocational schools, boot camps, online, offline, um, that address not just the entry-level jobs, corporate education, things like that. So I think it'd be great to hear from Michael and Sean uh, maybe, uh, to talk about that. Hey, folks. Uh, so as uh, Ruben said, I run a uh, vocational school for software engineers. Uh, within our field, we are one of the largest educators. So we educate about 1,500 software engineers per year, which is kind of comparable to the UC system. And so this is a model of education that is very different in some ways from traditional post-secondary. Some differences include it's a lot shorter. Uh, our program's three months long as opposed to a CS degree being about four years. And the, two compare, uh, the two prepare students for comparable entry-level roles. And uh, this model is interesting, sort of beyond software engineering. We've seen a work in a lot of uh, fields that are considered vocational. Um, but I think that what coding boot camps and similar educational programs have proven is that the fields that we think of as careers are actually amenable to the same type of educational model. Uh, and uh, what is missing from the model right now, I think, is there are a couple of pieces. One of them, one of the missing pieces is that it's highly dependent on a massive imbalance between some supply and demand such that students will privately finance this type of education. And it also creates an access issue. Title IV just doesn't apply to non-accredited programs, which generally vocational schools that have would struggle to with the traditional accreditation pathways. Um, so then uh, the other missing piece is that we are really not plugged in with what are today the clearinghouses of folks that would like to upscale or reskill. And that's uh, folks like the, the traditional college and university system and the community colleges. Uh, so we've, we struggle to create those partnerships uh, and to really effectively create an ecosystem of where there's a, a good clearinghouse that works as a general reception area for students that uh, for traditional or non-traditional students that want to retrain or reskill and uh, programs like Hack Reactor that are really effective targeted programs that work for one specific endpoint. So uh, I, I feel like there's a, I, I'm really happy, first of all, just to see uh, community colleges represented here, because I think there's a missing opportunity that we don't talk about enough with the tech sector about how do we invest in existing infrastructure, what's already available in our communities. And the community college system is, is so critical and crucial to so many people. The way that we have uh, built our program, which is a coding boot camp style program, but it's also a 51C3 nonprofit school is actually by investing heavily in relationships with uh, colleges at various levels. And uh, we've realized that when you're partnering with major tech companies, it's critical to bring community colleges to the table. And we've also tried to experiment with very low-cost models for delivering our uh, services. And uh, we don't charge colleges anything whatsoever. We provide, uh, we create the curriculum, we provide free resources, we're opinionated in terms of instructional design, and we provide these free resources available to students or professors or uh, any educator that's interested. So if we were to collaborate, various types of organizations, mine, Sean's, as well as with major tech companies to have a common playbook for providing these resources to community colleges 
then that can help to alleviate some of the critical gaps that we're seeing. For example, you know, is is uh, what's being taught and the way that it's being taught meeting the expectations for major tech companies? Are we sufficiently providing enough curriculum and training in the critical areas such as cybersecurity where there's roles, uh, for example, security analysts, where we have the potential to fill millions of jobs over the next couple of years with comparatively lower amount of training than what might be required if you're looking at a full stack uh, software engineer that needs to go across a lot of different areas. So we, we kind of have, I guess, through iteration, uh, been able to discover some of these opportunities. Uh, and so I think that if I'm going to you know provide a suggestion for people in the room as well as for um, the members that are here today, then uh, at Investing in community colleges, in universities is critical, but having really low cost models for being able to do that, I think, is also critical because that can be a barrier. It doesn't need to be a barrier. Uh, and as an example, our program is about $500 per student for teaching someone for an entire semester. And in collaboration with the curriculum already available in these institutions, that that's enough to get them uh, life changing uh, job opportunities. So definitely, you know, supportive of a lot of different programs, but more tech companies need to be in agreement with what the standards are or having a common language for being able to say to, for example, Merritt College, yes, your students have the skills that they need to have. I don't feel like that dialogue is uh, as transparent as it can be, uh, as well as we also need to do a better job of having those shared curriculum uh, practices, uh, shared standards, uh, so that we're also speaking the same language because the problem is just too large for any single organization to do it by themselves. Thank you. So this is an open question. Uh, how can we support black and brown students in STEAM in high school before they drop out of high school or out of the industry in general? So if I may, the, um, there's a couple things that are, there are a couple factors that are really important when thinking about this. So one is just math achievement levels. It's, um, it's, if you're not on Algebra 1 after your freshman year, you're basically off track. So there's quite a bit of, of focus that we can put there and just making sure our students sort of stay part of the overall you know, path toward actually being and succeeding in STEM. A couple other things for, for high school students that I think we've learned is one, just like the cultural relevancy is really important. I think you can't just go out and tell these students, you know, hey, you should take computer science. Like they don't know why that's important. We shouldn't sort of assume that they that. They see that as a, a pure path to a job or even that they think that way. Um, it's important to sort of frame the computer science education in a way that they can digest it, become interested and know how it's sort of attached to their worlds. That's something that's incredibly important. There's also this issue that there's just a tremendous shortage of teachers that are available to actually teach CS, to teach math, to teach any of the sciences within the schools and the neighborhoods we're talking about. So there's a real need to sort of increase the amount of teacher training and then the number of quality teachers and even how sort of teachers are actually dispersed within school districts um, to make sure that these high need students are actually getting access to the best teachers and the teachers qualified to actually teach STEM disciplines. So I guess those are some of the things I would highlight at the top. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, one thing I would want to point out here is that um, when we look at black and brown students and particularly women, um, high school is too late. So um, what we found in both the programs that we do with Black Girls Code and what we've seen the research to bear out from companies such as Google is that for girls in particular, and certainly for girls of color, Black and Latino girls specifically, they must be engaged in an in intense STEM focus and, and immersion by middle school. 
And if we don't get them involved early, we will not have them by the time they get to high school. Um, so it's critical that there is a focus on making sure that there is tech education in public schools. But I also also want to push on the concept, especially with the the funding that's coming from the Department of Education, that there is some specific language that directs some of that funding um, from direct in-school programs to after-school programs. A recent report by Google showed that for most Black and Brown girls and Black students in general, Black and Brown students in general, they get most of their STEM education outside of school. So I want to be sure that as we start to focus about getting tech education as part of our um, K-12 educational system, that we put as much focus for Black and Brown students in after-school programs like Black Girls Code, Level Playing Field, because that's where our students tend to have the most success, because they, are, they tend to be still disenfranchised in traditional school programs. Got it. Okay, so my name is Evelina again, and I wanted to talk about this. Not everyone who is interested in tech education wants to join Silicon Valley's tech pipeline. There's a lot of communities who are really interested in knowing how can they use and solve today's problems with tech education. So currently today with 3D printer, you can create 10 houses. When you're talking about poor, young, black and brown children, if we taught them those skills, what what programs would they be creating with that knowledge? A lot of our education and our narrative that we talk about is about scarcity. There's not enough jobs. There's not enough resources. But we all know with the tech tools that we have today, we're living in a world of abundance. So if we're talking about this what we can create is offers young people a more creative way to really engage with tech education. And I think as you were talking about the cultural aspect, that's what they're interested in. They're interested in solving today's problems because they know that their mothers work really hard and they're still poor. Also, I think we need to challenge our way of what we think education really is. So my programs, I take students out to the wilderness They go camping for a weekend and I have tech companies come up and teach them in a low tech environment what they do for a living. So imagine communicating what project management is from a coding perspective without the ability to show code. So it makes people have to use their minds and extrapolate what they're doing, the underlying principles of what they're learning so that they can utilize that in various areas and various careers opportunities for them. So just wanted to say that. Yeah, like, uh, I love the idea of um, putting them next to some fire and some sticks and stones and seeing how they survive. You know, I think that's one, one way of um, engaging project-based learning, essentially, right? It's like, um, so just a few things. I love the idea of blurring the lines, as you mentioned. You know, when you're living in K-12 and you're just in that world of just going to school every day, you're engaged with 18 years of just essentially doing nothing that's really productive towards work and your profession. And so if we can engage at a younger level with dual enrollment systems and concurrent enrollment systems, uh, taking senior courses, even junior courses, and actually embedding uh, not math class per se, um, maybe not English class even per se, or a career technical education course per se, but actually carving out a work-based learning course where they can actually work as an internship program at Europe uh, or work at, you know, Black Girls Code, um, you know, during school time and actually go out of the school setting where they're caged 
I think that that really builds a phenomenal sense of connection to the community that can really build and engage them with the real world. We're finding that our our um, all our students, for the most part, except you know Irvington High School in Fremont or something, uh, are, are disengaged. You know, and teachers are just struggling with being able to actually engage them in a way that's really exciting. Um, so I would say um, project-based learning is a good move. You know, I think we need to start working with our employers and tech companies and just companies in general and creating an employer-relevant, industry-based project-based learning. Uh, moving towards work-based learning and integrating that into the actual school time, going to break down the barrier of actually having to, you know, leave, like going to leave school and actually work. Um, a lot of these families who are struggling, who, who, and by the way, I just want to thank you guys for the WIOA, the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, and the stipends that you can give to our students because that's what we're living on to engage our, our kids because they need to work and get money uh, during high school so they can support themselves and their family. Uh, without that, they are disengaged and they will drop out and go towards another path. So that's kind of what I think should uh, we we can make happen. I think with the community college system, I love the idea of just not really calling it K twelve anymore, but calling K fourteen, and allowing them to break the path and go to a university, or go to a trade, or go to a union, go to whatever they want to go after twelve, but having a guaranteed path to thirteen and fourteen, uh, and then allowing a direct pathway in high school that really leads straight into that and sets them up for success from the get go. So thank you. How do we know if a coding program is effective and what standards do we have to tell if the program's working? CIR standards? Sorry, a coding program? Yeah. You mean like a coding bootcamp? Yeah, like CIR standards, things ah. like that. So uh, there's a hot topic among uh, vocational schools, uh, which is basically do they work or not and which ones do and how do we have a thriving vocational sector that does work for students from a variety of different backgrounds. Uh, one area that I want to highlight here that is complicating matters is that uh, there, uh, there's not a lot of good regulation, functioning re regulation around uh, how schools account for employment outcomes and graduate outcomes. I'll say that a lot of effort has been put into this, but it's an intrinsically hard problem. Uh, there's a lot to be said on this topic, but uh, my school uh, has participated in a uh, California-level task force to work on this problem uh, at the Bureau for Private Post-Secondary Education, and our recommendation is to adopt the work of the community college system, and uh, which is basically collect social security numbers, track uh, graduate, uh, track before and after uh, tax receipts, and use that as the basis. Uh, I would love to see more post-secondary money tied to employment outcomes and see that uh, see a nationwide system for post-secondary education, both uh, accredited and non-accredited, uh, tie into that system, which the name of it is escaping me right now, but it's something gecko. Do you remember what I'm talking about, Eli? Uh, no, I'm stuck my head. All good. Uh, can, I, can I chime in there? Um, I, I want to um, kind of add to that and say that, you know, in um, in my organization, um, a lot of our membership has come through these coding bootcamp type of programs. And, you know, we've seen a lot of great successes from Hack Reactor. Um, but there's also the there's a spectrum of quality in the schools. So just like just like any other school, there's a big spectrum. And one thing that's a challenge right now is that um, because it's such a new industry, the coding bootcamp like industry is only a few years old, um, there's there really isn't good expectations 
So you have people who are like moving across the country, coming to Silicon Valley, spending in some cases like $15,000 on a program. And then in the end, they can't actually get a job and have to go back home and um, some sort of some standards and expectation setting would be very useful. Yeah. Uh, So we actually currently have a couple of uh, studies that we're running right now, one with Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which we're comparing um, hundreds of uh, engineers from underrepresented backgrounds that have made it through various levels in their interviewing process. And uh, there's an initial assessment with them. We put them through one of our programs, and then we do a post-analysis to see uh, how much impact there's been on how far they make it into that interview process. And we have some other merit programs. Uh, when we're running courses on colleges and universities, we also compare to the historic pass-through rate of those um, of that college campus and compare that with the historical data of the companies that we're working with. And um, I actually have a pretty simple view about uh, coding boot camps in general. I'm, I'm looking at employability and I'm looking at controlling for the uh, social economic status and background of the people that you're teaching. And then you need to compare that to the historic pass through rates of different companies and divide companies to tiers of how competitive they are to get into. Because uh, there was a comment earlier about, uh, you know, uh, if you if you end up uh gaining these new skills, kind of like what happens in the future, how employable are you? And, uh, and does that lead to, uh, upward mobility and, um, your ability to kind of flourish in, in the, the tech sector? And, and so again, tech companies do have this data. If they share that with you, then you can kind of compare it historically to all their other sources. I'd love to add a perspective on as well. I think when you know, when something is working, when employers will pay for it, and the caveat is Europe doesn't run, we don't run coding boot camps. Our, we will focus on cybersecurity, IT, financial operations, uh, data analytics, and quality assurance. But we, in our partnership model with community colleges, we can fund wraparound services, internship placement, and support, and a staff that builds a co- community and a cohort that's operational costs are covered by the corporations in exchange for that internship. The students are paid throughout the entire experience. And it's an example of aligning a set of systems to employer demand with a recognition that one of the most important dynamics of education is to support someone in being able to forge a lifelong career. So we partner with community colleges, build a curriculum that's oriented toward an internship that is valuable to a company where they pay us, and that funds a le- an educational stipend for the student, both while they're training as well as while they're in internship, and also the wraparound services and support that low-income students need in order to make it through such a rigorous and demanding process. Got it. Uh, uh, Can I just add one thing on that? Uh, one thing I'd like to see, though, and I think this is like I, we don't do coding boot camps, but I'm just speaking for from an ecosystem perspective is that I think it's great that, you know, companies will pay some organizations for the programs that they do. Um, but when we're looking at black and brown communities, we're looking about being able to change trajectories and families, right? So I think that it's one thing for a program to get paid for an initial placement, but I think there needs to be some standards that tracks the students over a longer period of time. I think one of, I think maybe Sean mentioned it or somebody mentioned it about looking at 
how their income level from a family perspective has changed over a five to 10 year period after participation in a coding boot camp. I think that's the really um, the lever that shows that the program has been successful if it has actually has some sustainable growth for the person that's attending. Um, in your in your perspective, are companies giving away money to these diversity programs, coding boot camps, things like that, to check a diversity box? Are you seeing changes in outcomes, or uh, can you can you point to some things that are actually moving the needle within the companies themselves? I see a lot of <laughs> ornamental activity personally. Yeah, I mean, so we come at this from a really, I think, a different perspective, an aligned and adjacent perspective. So. One, it's clear that the economy is being both financialized and sort of tech is playing a huge role, but we know that the labor market is producing overwhelmingly low-wage jobs, right? So the fastest-growing industries are retail, service. Walmart employs 1.4 million people, Google 32,000 people. So just let's put that into perspective. The economy, I think... Uh, one of the rubs for me from the worker perspective is that I, I worry that we're spending a whole bunch of time trying to crowd Black and Latinx folks into, frankly, like one or two jobs that don't, care, don't guarantee well, long-term well-being without talking about the need to really bolster wages, think about long-term well-being. We're going to need people to care for people forever in this country. So how do we make sure that those folks are also taken care of, that they're not poor? Um, and we've reached a point, I think, that uh, that kind of disassociates uh, where our economy is and where the labor market is. There isn't sort of a, an apples-to-apples apples conversation. We're having an apples-and-oranges conversation um, for us, we spent, we, so I'm like one Latina that sits at this really weird intersection of capital, tech, and labor. So I get invited to a good number of events on diversity and inclusion. And more and more, we realize that it's actually not moving the needle at all. That frankly, the DNI people who are placed in these companies are neither authorized nor do they have the money to actually change anything within the company. So it's somebody who's awesome. It's like the best looking, best dressed, most amazing, smartest person in the room. But within the company, they oftentimes don't have the authority or the money to actually change practice. And to take it a step further, I will be provocative and say this. I often feel like they place uh, folks of color and overly, overwhelmingly women of color into these positions. And when something does happen in a company, they point at that person and are like, well, where were you at? Right. And so we're seeing that now with like the Nike, Nike conversation where they had a diversity and inclusion person at Nike. They got fired um, and it doesn't they did get fired. And there's like a weird uh, I feel like we're trying to solve a problem by placing the burden on an individual as opposed to an industry or a company and haven't been super thoughtful and frankly have taken the authority away from human resources. So back in the day, it would be like a human resources person. It would be their responsibility to actually negotiate or to sort of deal with workplace conversations. We've put it into like a little bubble where the person, again, doesn't have authority and doesn't have autonomy to actually do the kind of work that they need to do. Yeah. yeah. Does anybody else want to go in on that? Yeah, I want to pile on and say every all, all of that. I want to uh, just double down on that. If there's one thing that we could see that I think affects every question so far, 
it would be putting the money responsibility on the Fortune 500. If you want to see that change, then put it on their pocketbook. Like uh, if we can see that at a legislative point of view, then suddenly the money starts flowing in a very different way than it's flowing right now. I would I would describe the level of DNI funding right now to support pipelines of students of color, to support like at the K twelve level, at the across at the community college level, across like uh, where we can find scholarship pools and partners that want to help do that or or referral fees, uh, stuff that it, uh, Emily talked about, uh, money that helps run their programs. All of that it, it is dependent on budget that doesn't exist right now. Uh, you know, like if I, I sit on a US, uh, SFUSD board, a uh, funding review board, and like I look at their budgets and like their budgets can't can't do it. You know, like they can't get uh, solid coding education across all the campuses uh, with the budget that's there now. And uh, but if we can get uh, the magnitude of this problem surfacing in the Fortune 500 companies, and we can, if that's then something that we can actually tackle from a legislative standpoint, if we can like source how the money flows, if we can change how the money flows, I think that will change this conversation. I'm going to step out on a limb here real quick, but um, uh, one of the things I think that really concerns me is that uh, now that Jesse Jackson's health is fading, like the the fire, the feet to the fire is kind of dissipating. And uh, I know three years ago when he started the Push Tech 2020 conference and got all these tech companies to produce their numbers and then shamed the companies when they, uh, they their numbers weren't changing. At least they pledged anywhere from $50 million to $300 million at fixing this problem. Haven't seen where that money has gone. But um, what typically happens in companies is that all of these organizations here are funneled into one or two people that have the purse strings. And for all these organizations to do what they're doing, they want to give you five or $10,000 and hope that that's going to make a difference in the programming that you're doing, which it doesn't. Uh, so companies really need to look at where you know, their bottom line is and in really looking at their departments on a department, departmental level and investing in, in programs with pipeline and partnerships with colleges, et cetera, uh, in their budgets, not necessarily just recruitment, but in their budgets. And that's uh, the only godsend that I've had as far as to be able to get the funding that I've gotten. And that's through vice presidents or directors who run business units who see the value of the programming that I do. If I went to a nonprofit person or the community relations person, it's a dead end. And I'd waste you know two weeks filling out a grant application to get a, a no six months from now. So um, the bureaucracy has to change. Thank you. Either. I was actually just going to reiterate your points. Um, the DNI folks are not empowered. They're, they're there to check the box. And I would definitely say it's, it's more of a PR role, a public relations and marketing and branding role to say, hey, we hear about these problems and we're able to have a conversation about them. Um, but there's really nothing that comes out of those conversations more than sound bites. Um, and then always, to be honest, even if we did make Google and Facebook and Silicon Valley black and brown, is that really solving the issues in the black and brown communities that we're facing? You know, I would also just jump in there to say a couple of things, too. One is that, um, you know, people spend money on the things that they value. 
And I think that um, we are seeing a lot of checking the box right now. Um, the we've worked extensively with community colleges. We have a, a great program with Skyline College, but I and I would argue that you know tech is embedded in every single job these days, and we are, that is just becoming more and more prevalent. So we can't just talk about this in in sort of a myopic viewpoint. I think of tech companies, but it is everything. So that's number one. The second thing is, is that this is not just about skill sets. That's very important, but it's also there's a lot of research about belonging. Um, how, what belonging means in, in, um, in terms of people's, uh, uh, how they feel about their work and whether they stay at work and how they feel about the company. Um, there's a lot about growth mindset. We're working a lot now with a lot of our folks. We're training them in growth mindset because we find that people come to us with a fixed mindset. I can't do this. I'm not smart. I'm not able to do that. I'm not good at math. And what we found is with some growth mindset training, and then putting those folks saying, all right, but let's try it. Let's see if you can get your N plus, S plus, and A plus certifications, right? We have been very successful in folks who thought they could not learn. They've gotten their certifications and they're standing 20 feet taller. So some of this is also a mindset that we have to look at and getting folks into tech companies. If they don't feel, if folks don't feel like they belong, you're not going to see retention rates. This is not going to happen. So I, I think that. We, we gotta, we, we have to think about this in a broader sense. And the way that I'd like to explain it in very simplistic terms is Goodwill for a long time was teaching people how, because we, we are essentially a laboratory. We, we basically, we're providing people an earn while you learn model. So folks are developing skill sets so that we can help folks move into middle income jobs. That's the only reason that Goodwill exists. So if, 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 if you take somebody and you teach them how to use a, um, a cash register. What have you taught them? Not much. If you teach them that that cash register has a point of sale system associated with it, that point of sale system generates data that that data can be turned into a report. And that port, report can actually inform you in what to do in your business. That is actually something. So it's the skills, it's the techno, technological skill sets, but it's also data analytics and business intelligence that people need so that they can be looking at the larger picture. So they're not confined to this, but they actually can operate at this level. And that's where I think um, in many ways we fail. We think, well, we're going to teach people how to code, but we don't teach people um, the broader skill set that they need in order to be successful. No. Um, so can I say something? Yes. I just want to say, um, I think it's growth mindset both ways. Yeah. It's not Absolutely. just the student, but it's also Absolutely. in the companies understanding because when yes. many of our students go and our students have made it to those companies, they get there and you're talking about belonging. Exactly. They don't feel like they belong exactly. at all. It's the way they're treated. So it's not only the student, him or herself, who doesn't feel I'm not able to do it. It's when they get there because now they've gone to our cybersecurity right. program and they're ready to go. But the people who are receiving them don't think they can do it. Well, I mean, so it needs to happen yes. both ways. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that. That's really important. Yes. Yes. I would like, uh, since people are throwing in their wish list of things for you all to do when you <laughs> I'm going to do a, a pilot. I feel like for, for us, the two things related to that that are sort of front of mind is less sort of the rise of automation or robots taking people's jobs and actually the rise of contract labor mm -hmm. in the U.S. Yes. So by 2020, it's like 50% of jobs will be contract in this country. 
um, those workers don't benefit from the same civil rights and sexual harassment protections that traditional W-2 workers benefit from. It's, it's so you'll have a company that you'll so of the 32,000 Google employees, they estimate that's about 10 percent are contractors of those 10 percent. They couldn't say I don't belong here because legally they don't have those protections. And so trying to think about as classification, worker classification becomes an issue. How do we stretch benefits that exist for W-2 workers to protect contractors and temporary workers, I think is a real critical issue to belonging. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Carmen, you also brought up labor unions. Um, what, what's the role of labor unions related to the future work? I know we talked a lot about coding, uh, retail as a center that's being affected by automation, so are others. Can you talk a little bit more about the role of labor unions in tech? The you guys know labor the labor movement is under attack. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, with Jen, it's like literally the days are counted. For us as an organization and partnership with SCIU, we're clear that like collective bargaining built a middle class in this country, but it was mostly a white middle class in this country. And are trying to think about, in partnership with labor, those places where collective bargaining can still be protected or stretched. So trying to have conversations uh, with private sector employers. But honestly, like it's a... Sadly, the end of an era for the labor movement as we knew it in the 20th century. And for us, it's really about a couple of things, right? So, like, can we create models where working people are not only workers, but owners? So in Jacksonville, Mississippi, we funded the creation of, fab- of a fabrication lab so people can manufacture. So if you want to make T-shirts you usually have to send them out to like a big production plant and they only print them by the thousands. But let's say you only wanted to print 200 t-shirts. At a fab lab, uh, it allows you to print at that scale. So if you're a small business person, you can do that. In Mississippi, it's illegal to have cooperatives. And so they are trying to figure out how to have a black maker space where they're making, they're manufacturing things and actually sharing the wealth of that manufacturing plant with the members of the community. So we're interested in those models that allow workers not only to be workers, but to be workers and owners. We're interested in trying to figure out how to get companies to pay in different ways. So we have a an experiment that we're running right now on trying to get 1099 contractors $1,000 when they need it. Because one of the things that we kept on seeing was that Traditional labor organizations were fighting for long-term benefits when the vast majority of working people don't have $400 in case of an emergency. And so we were, we're trying to figure out how do we create a model or examples of the private sector actually paying for things, uh, paying for their workers. And if it's not going to be in wages, can it be in the form of a hardship fund? So for, for us, it's like we're in a weird place because on the one side we're funded by labor and are clear about the the number days hopefully not of the labor movement as we know it and are excited about these other models for workers to have power in our economy yeah yeah i kind of want to touch on something you just brought up about the four hundred dollars something that you brought up related to people that go through coding boot camps they have the tuition money but then there's a job search time period to get the job. And if you don't have enough money to pay rent or food and things like that, there's issues. So can you talk a little bit more about 
the issues that you've seen, how government can get involved, how companies can get involved to support people in that job search period to get into the roles that they're looking for? Yeah. So um, a few of the, the challenges we've seen in places where like uh, racial disparities come into play is one of the biggest things is that for, for Latinx communities, when you're going to a coding boot camp, you're taking a big risk because you have to support your family, like oftentimes. And if you're taking six months off to like go to school, that's six months of you not supporting your family. Whereas, you know, if you're coming from a privileged background, you know, your parents are paying for you to go to the boot camp and you don't have to like worry about like how you're going to like cover your expenses. And so there, there's a lot of great programs out there that do support people who like one is like Hack the Hood here in Oakland. You know, they 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 provide like a stipend to their students um, so that they can, you know, learn these skills. Other places where it's a challenge for people to like land a job after a boot camp is knowing that after a boot camp, you have to continue developing your skills. You have to keep practicing. You have to spend oftentimes six months to six to nine months just looking. I would say, I mean, one big thing that you didn't mention that I know is like right there was housing. A lot of people who are going to these boot camps are sleeping on couches. They're figuring out what Airbnb, couch surfing, figuring out what Airbnbs Unemployment looks really different in 21st century, and a lot of them are students really trying and really working really hard to move forward and to learn tech. Can I add quickly? Yeah. The students that come to us, they typically have been in the workforce before. They're your checker at Target. They're stocking the shelves at Walmart. They're doing retail service, hospitality, security jobs. And what keeps them in those jobs is that they're providers and supporters of their family, maybe kids of their own, maybe their extended family, maybe their parents. That keeps them in that minimum wage treadmill and school. The one thing that could break them out of that becomes out of reach. So I would love to just express my support for financial aid, Pell funding. We are very lucky in California to have the Board of Governors fee waivers for low-income students. These funds make a huge difference in the lives of students and make higher education achievable. It's still a really hard road. And if there's anything we could do to build that up, I think we'd see some really dramatic outcomes in our workforce. Thank you uh, for making that point. Uh, I love that the members and several people in the room are are passionate about uh, cybersecurity because I think that um, security and self-defense is a unique issue in black and brown communities when it comes to even trying to learn. So, Edelene, since you are a leader in cybersecurity, can you t- tell us a little bit more about how we can prepare our communities with self-defense in the 21st century? In the 21st century, what we're living in today is the prison no longer has walls. It's digital. So although we applaud California and other places for decreasing their prison population, what we see is that we're living in a digital surveillance state. And the people who are most impacted oftentimes are people who are receiving benefits from the government and who are poor working class communities. So what techactors.org likes to do is really educate people on our privacy rights, digital security, open source tools, because yes, we're talking about Facebook and Google and different things like that, but there's other tools that people can use that we're not aware of. And even if you're an organizer, if you're a teacher, a lot of teachers face the same thing where they're allowing their students to participate and using applications that basically put them in a, a different type of school to prison pipeline. 
But with more access and more funding in, in decentralized tools, these students aren't subjected to that type of exposure at a very young age. Um, you have anything from health benefits. Uh, if you're seeking health benefits, currently we have people with Fitbits, and it's not quite a Fitbit, but it's similar to a Fitbit, and they're receiving health benefits. After a couple of months, if you're not active, then you lose your health benefits if you're receiving government funding and different things like that. It really exploits people of color and working class communities. And um, the awareness of what digital prisons look like definitely needs to be, we need to have more conversations about that so that we feel prepared. Thank you. Uh, does anybody want to go in on the school to prison pipeline, the growth of the cannabis tech industry, anything like that? No. So one of our one of our innovation, we run an innovation fund twice a year. We give money to entrepreneurs, worker organizers, and to uh, like municipal officials. So like the city of Boston was an applicant. One of our last innovation fund winners was uh, Oakland-based uh, the Hood Incubator, trying to figure out how to. With the increasing number of dispensaries and the legalization of cannabis across the country, how do you make sure that those that dispensaries are owned by uh, communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the criminal justice system? And so in Colorado, we found that in the first two years of the legalization of cannabis, 18,000 new jobs were created and $2 billion were brought into the state. But the vast majority of that money went to white folks who had, frankly, like no proximity at all to cannabis. And so in California and as states start to think about uh, legalization of cannabis, one of the things that we're interested in doing is trying to figure out how we support black and Latinx entrepreneurs to get ahead of that and make sure that they are participating in the economy uh, wholly. Thank you. How can for-profit firms support community stakeholders like you all to work collaboratively um, to address the issues that uh, the members here have brought up with the Tech 2020 initiative? Are you referring to you know, major tech companies as yes, a for-profit? Okay. Well, so, so there's a couple things that I think are just really easy for major com- tech companies to do. Uh, investing in a more apprenticeship-style programs that are across the full life cycle of different workers. It's not just someone who's coming out of school. It's not just someone who's coming out of a coding boot camp. Uh, you know, it's open everything from, um, I'm a veteran. I've been employed for a couple of years. I'm better than what I look on paper. And so tech companies, this is actually pretty easy. A lot of them have been interested, but they haven't really been doing enough, largely because of what we mentioned before. A lot of DNI executives, they're more of a face. They're not really actually have a lot of power inside the organizations. Other things tech companies can do that are very easy. So a lot of uh, boot camps will have to create their own physical space for teaching. Uh, that is very expensive. We've been surprised at the number of tech companies that just provide free space. We've actually never, ever had to pay for space, and we teach around 2,000 students every single year. And so so another thing is uh, space, but that also comes with kind of built-in mentorship, also uh, assistance with providing access to whether they have existing types of curriculum. Edelin was talking about cybersecurity. Facebook, is, as an example, has free uh, kind of introductory, what is security, what's, uh, what do you have to worry about with privacy? If 
many of these community organizations could benefit from the fact that there's offices all over the place that they would probably be very, very open to, not just uh, some of the major tech companies, just broadly looking at the Fortune 500. It's cheap to provide mentorship. It's cheap to provide office space. If they, if you want them to take a look over the curriculum, that's also cheap. I think one problem is that there's not a coordinated effort. Everybody's kind of doing their own thing. Major companies are doing their own things. And sometimes the programs that they're supporting the most are legacy programs that actually aren't really that effective. Anybody else? I'd say... Uh... You know, there are a lot of tech conferences, you know, and a lot of great people that are on these panels. I'd rather not have the audience there. I'd rather those people talk and actually make progress and do something on a level, a collaborative level in the industry, because they have time to come to to speak all the time. But I'd much rather see meetings and action items and things coming from that so that we could all benefit from that as opposed to paying for a registration and going to a conference. Yeah, no, I agree. Have we ever seen a tech conference where everybody in attendance is like mostly people from Oakland or whoever we're talking about? I just had a tech conference this year, actually, one of the first of its kind. It was called Tech Intersections, where we focus primarily on women of color. And that was a very subjective word. Um, because a lot of people identify as women of color, but we wanted to focus on marginalized women of color. So we were talking about Asian. We're not talking about Chinese. We're talking about Cambodian. Um, We're talking, you know, just kind of like going deep down with the people who are mostly marginalized. And that was um, represented by 90% of women of color uh, who represent marginalized communities um, from Oakland. It was really surprising that we did received 15% of people coming from different cities, but it was here held in Oakland. It was actually held in Mills College. So again, as you're saying, kind of leveraging the the resources and the infrastructure that we have here today to um, to not pay for just kind of high fees, but really focus on like really impact. And that's kind of what we focused on. Thank you. Uh, what role does the media have to play in relation to the future of work specifically for the communities we're addressing today? I feel like the scare around automation, like there just isn't enough information. And when you think about a company like Tesla, for example, that's going through a huge debacle because they try to make robots do everything and then they had to turn around and actually employ people. That for me as a canary in the coal mine, I feel like the tech media in particular is obsessed with automation without substantive information about the labor market, the pace of change, if automation is going to happen, it's not going to happen in one fell swoop. And I feel like there's a role to, there's just like a a level of dramatics that is like, that's a core to how the media is portraying the future of work as if it's wholly disconnected from the past and the present of work. For the tech companies, I want to throw in my, my requests Data transparency, data transparency on employment and how they're using our data. I feel like that is if we could ask these companies, something I feel like as for all the talk of wanting to be good public stewards or I think there's like such a weird language around companies. But if that's what they're going to do, it would be helpful to have some sort of way to understand how they are using information, both of their workers and of their consumers. Thank you. I would say from the media standpoint, 
first question would be that um, they need to tell better stories. Yeah. So I think we, we hear a lot and we're inundated with stories about Facebook and the privacy issue, but we don't hear stories about organizations right here in this room that are doing work to diversify the tech industry. And that kind of loops into what I think we need. Like my reason for being here is that there's, I feel like Oakland is the epicenter of what a tech industry can look like. It's just here. It's everything from the community colleges to the nonprofit organizations that are doing work on the field and we don't get the support that we need. So like, I don't think that there's probably anybody at any of these tables that's doing this groundwork that says we have enough money to do the work that we need to do. Like, we don't have enough money. And I think that's problematic. Well, we're sitting right here in the heart of Silicon Valley, and we're when you're meeting with these tech industries and these companies this week that say they are committed to diversity, but the folks that are from the community doing this grassroots work don't have enough support to do what we need to do. The answers are here. Like, we know how to fix it. But we're just not given the support that we need. And we need to get at the root of that. Like, why is that? That we don't have the support that we need to drive programs at California Community Colleges. Why don't we have it at Black Girls College? Why don't we have it at Level Playing Field? Why don't we have it at Social Engineering Project? We're the ones that are actively working to bring more Black and Brown, and I would also say intersectional personalities to the forefront. And if those companies are really committed, then we'll, we should be having a different conversation when you guys are here next time. Can you talk about um, what you did with Hidden Figures and Empire and the impact that that had? With, oh, yes. <laughs> I think on the media standpoint, like we did a lot of work um, both with uh, Wrinkle in Time, Hidden Figures, Black Panther, to really make sure that this image of what it means to be a computer scientist at a broader lens. So really working with media at a very uh, strategic level to make sure our kids of color were both seen as innovators and, and being, were able to see those people that were uh, trailblazers. And also, I think, just to, to make sure they had a voice. So like when we see the end of Black Panther and that center is built in Oakland, like it's in Oakland. Like I saw this in Paris and I was like, yes, Oakland. Um, that's important because we don't have that. But I think that painted a, a, a picture of what the future could be if these tech companies really stepped up to the plate and put some real actionable dollars behind the, the lip service that they pay to diversity and inclusion. Yeah, the only the only thing I would add to that is the lip service piece is they're so infatuated with the PR spin mm-hmm. and and also the, just because of the way tech works scale. Mm-hmm. So everything is focused on like, oh, how do we touch or, or reach millions of students at a time? Like, look, the numbers in tech are so abysmal right now. Like, let's see deep investment to really, like, get students moving forward. Let's really see transformation and stop measuring based on how many students do we reach. Like, it's just still that PR spin. How many students do our code? Right. 15,000 Exactly. Compare the current status quo to, like, where we were before the EPA came online. And we look at disparate impact that's happening across the Fortune 500, and they're, they're not accountable for that impact and they're not held accountable for that in terms of where the dollars and cents wind up on their balance sheet and if it was the case that they can't produce these externalities without it winding up on their balance sheet i would think that Oakland would start receiving the only missing piece of the puzzle which is the money so i think that that is something that 
is I think a big piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can I add to the to the um the comment about the media and having people that look like you? Yes. That is so important because right now one of the biggest things that we see in our community is uh, imposter syndrome is, mm-hmm. is a huge problem. And having role models is a way for you to know that this is a goal that you can work towards where even if like you might not know somebody in your family who's doing it, like you at least have somebody else who can like show you yeah. like, Hey, I'm capable of this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm really excited about this conversation because every single person in this room is powerful and is doing things um, that are great individually and sometimes through partnership. I, I would love to kind of like close with four Congresswoman Barbara Lee provides her commentary by you know having a little brainstorm session about what we can do together that to hold ourselves accountable to the things that the Tech 2020 initiative is addressing and just kind of like, you know, see if we have some takeaways that we could work on before we leave here. Anybody can start. I want to follow up about the growth mindset. What about um, colleges with boot camps? Something. Any ideas? You all want to chat? <laughs> sure. I, you know, specifically for the, for the members, I mean, there are several levers that you do have. You know, we have an administration that is opening the doors to the for-profit sector. We have to be very careful about how that impacts communities of color, particularly as, as it relates to accumulation of debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, because at the end of the day, we're trying to help individuals grow wealth, and settling them with debt is a recipe for that to never happen. Uh, so gainful employment uh, is a big issue. We just had a rulemaking session with the department. They could not agree, so they're going to drop their own rules. I think the more pressure we can put on the secretary to ensure that future rulemaking is done in a way that levels the playing field but doesn't advantage the for-profit sector. Because at the end of the day, our, the people that we're talking about are in broad access public institutions like the community colleges, like the California State University system, like the UC, on and on and on across the country. Uh, So we have to be very careful that we level the playing field and not give the advantage to the for-profit sector. Second, uh, the use of Pell. Uh, In order to to do the things that we're talking about, whether it's partnering to offer boot camps, at the end of the day, we want to make sure that these individuals can pay for that education and pay for the cost of living while they obtain that education um, and not have to borrow to gain that education. So uh, I know Senator Alexander uh, and the Senate Health Committee are, are seriously looking at short-term Pell. Um, and so we support that. But as long as that short-term Pell is used to give individuals quality credentials, that's key. Uh, so, and then the, the last thing I'd say, the more that we can, can bring together the um, Congressional Hispanic Caucus, the Congressional Black Caucus, the Latino Caucus in California, and, and the, the Black Caucus here in California to really coordinate these efforts, the better for us uh, in the field. I would like to to add that um, I think we should probably exchange contact information and actually um, meet. I know the last time we all got together was probably the last time you guys were here. And that's not really doing a lot of collaboration. I know that many of you have programs and serve students that we don't serve. So if we could be better advocates for one another, and if you have pre-middle school and 
you know, and that's not a lane that I have. We can work together on getting your students, you know, in a pipeline that's going to be, you know, comprehensive. And also students that have are going to boot camps and that kind of stuff that we understand and know what you're doing so we can send people your way. I think that, you know, and meeting on some frequent basis. No, but so you're going to organize it or I'm going to organize it? I think you're going to get hold of organizing it. Open offer to everyone at the table, uh, any of your community members, uh, we have a partnership program, and we'd like to invite any of your community members to a 150-hour uh, intro to coding program that runs online, and it's free. Love it. Love sure. it. So, William. So I, I agree with all of this, and I think it's great. I think we got to work together because I think there are ways that we can support one another. The other thing that I want to say about this, and this is a problem that we have that I would love to work on, is you know we have a lot of folks who are on um, getting public assistance, and what happens is... We say, hey, you just learned X. We want to give you a, a, a raise or we want to, or we or they can get another job for another $10,000 a year, but they will not take it because they lose their benefit. And so what happens is we have all these people who are stuck in minimum wage jobs because, frankly, and I will just, I'll just use San Francisco as an example, $54,000 a year for a two-bedroom apartment. Now, you have to make $70,000 a year to clear that $54,000. So you're going to give me $10,000 more a year. Who cares? So the smart thing to do, what I would do, is I would say, I'm not taking it because I have a $54,000 post-tax benefit that I'm going to lose if I succeed. And so we have to, we all have to be working to on, on policy that allows folks to not lose those benefits while they are are, are on a career path to success because otherwise they drop off that benefits cliff and then they're stuck. I'm making $10,000 more a year, but I can't, I can't, I don't have Love it. Um, I know we're, we're getting close to our hard stop. Um, can we, can we talk for like one minute about internships and apprenticeships real quick? I know you do internships and you brought sure. apprenticeships. Um, we do. So the program we have is a program called Smash Rising. And really what we're trying to do is get students really early exposure to internships. So 18 and 19 year olds get them for their first internship within the tech sector. Um, the way we do that is we're not just sort of throwing them to the wolves and saying, oh, we're going to pair you up with some manager who may or may not care that you're there. Um, there's just really a lot of variability if you do that as an experience. So we're taking groups of students, four to five students, putting that, them at companies like Pandora right in Oakland, right across from our office um, with a project manager. So someone who's with them all the time and basically they'll act like an internal consulting firm um, and work with folks on the other side of Pandora to come up with solutions. So the students get the opportunity to sort of go in there, see how decisions are made, see how things work within a company. They have support um, to help them just deal with all of the little things and big things of their first time being in a work environment. Um, and then the companies also get a look at a really different pipeline of talent. So you can get out of this mode of we get all of our engineers from one of five schools and that's the only way we do things. Thank you. Emily? So we are internship program. We work with We'll work with 500 people in the Bay Area this year, 4,000 across the country. The biggest thing that happens in that internship program is, number one, the interns get a chance to uh, earn work 
and have work experience bullet points for their resumes. So they can actually speak to projects they've taken on, tasks they've done, value that they've added on a job. They'll gain a reference and they'll do all of that at a company that is established enough to get you an, an interview for another job. This is really building the foundation of the career experience and enabling people to launch their careers. One of the differences between a work-based learning experience program and more traditional education experience program a more traditional education experience is that you learn the fundamentals of work, things like how to use email, how to book resources, like conference rooms through Outlook, what are the appropriate ways to communicate with your boss. And these are really vital skills that often are not taught in educational environments, but they're crucial for anyone who needs to have a job. So the work-based learning experience, I can't speak highly enough of it um, because it really does transform the trajectory. We're seeing that Europe graduates five years out of college, five years out of their Europe experience are making the same as the average college graduate five years after graduation. Thank you. you want to say something? And then I also want Kimberly to talk about how high school is too late and that will be done. So uh, we, we have a tech talent shortage, but um, I don't think there's enough discussed about how hard it is for tech companies to even sift through and assess people that are applying. Uh, Intuit, as an example, has 30,000 to 40,000 of these like intern applicants every single year. And uh, the way that they end up trying to identify who they should or shouldn't hire, some of it's automated, some of it's humans looking at resumes and what's the internship, what was your last internship, what's the school that you're going to. Uh, and so it's, it's very challenging as they're looking at the variety of different programs or sources or schools for them to be fair and effective at uh, evaluating people. Uh, the, our program actually initially was an internship program inside of Facebook where we've run multiple types of programs like that. And the goal was to put the same type of learning and educational environment directly on college campuses so that when an employer is looking at um, a student that we send them, they're able to see the exact same assessment across dozens and dozens of colleges and universities and and surprise they end up hiring different people than they normally would they hire from a much broader spectrum uh and so uh our experience has been and one reason i keep saying you know we have to collaborate and chat more with one another is because right now it's a very it's very challenging for tech companies to even appreciate who the people are that they're missing and they are they don't really necessarily have the tools, but I think the organizations in this room individually have been trying to build our own assessment systems. And if we're able to collaborate, then you end up instead of representing a drop in the bucket, you represent the opportunity for companies to be hiring uh, much larger volume uh, and you become something that's strategically really critical for them. Okay, I think we're ready to close. Okay, well, first, uh, let me say how. Um, much um, I appreciate this discussion because all of you um, have, first of all, confirmed a lot of what we have learned through our visits with the tech sector uh, and, of, and really given us some ideas and suggestions out of the box because clearly, you know, what the traditional ways of looking at um, racial equity and parity is, is they're not working. And so thank you for, for sharing these ideas. And we've got uh, quite a bit of work to do. We look forward to our continuing work together. A couple of things I want to mention. One is I came to uh, a couple of the SMASH programs, 200 primarily African-American and Latinx boys. At every one of them, bar none had a little business card, Okay. And they all told me about their apps they were developing and this and that. And they were entrepreneurs. 
And then I went into another um, room and they were developing their apps as part of their uh, project. And their apps, uh, I guess they were apps they were putting together, were not around um, traditional kinds of problem solving or, or what they wanted to do, but it was around social justice issues. Like, how can we make sure that our parents have a decent standard of living? How, how do we find affordable housing? What, how do we create it through technology a way for them to, uh, you know, better their lives? So it was really very going back to what you said. It, I mean, these young people are brilliant and, and we may need to look at how we help because I've often wondered what has happened to a lot of these young men. Have they gotten a business license or they do they have their well, a couple of them had clients already, you know. And so I think we need to really uh, look at that potential there on the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial front. And then finally, let me say I have um, young people I work with who are primarily African-American around gun violence. And at our last session, there was all of them. We've talked about guns, getting guns off the street. The fact that one young lady, I think she's in the 11th grade, 20 of her family members or friends have been shot. I mean, all of them had the trauma of gun violence in their lives. But they told me, they said, you know, this goes deeper than this in terms of just getting the guns off the street. And I'm listening to what you all were saying. One, as they said, we don't have any culturally relevant education. One young lady said, I had to figure out how to get to Africa to find out who I am. Another one said, because I said, well, what, what do you think we can do? More after-school programs. They said, we don't get what we need in school. We need more after-school programs. Another one said, and you know what? The teachers need training because the teachers we get are the least expense, experienced teachers, and they're here, and they said some of the teachers come to work off their student loans, and they're gone. And so everything you have said here today confirms what these young people uh, have been telling me over and over and over again. And so I'm, you know, not that it's so it's good to hear hear you see the same dynamic taking place. And so we have to, I think, listen to more people outside of the tech world to figure out how to get the tech world to respond appropriately, because clearly um, and, and I know. Congresswoman Waters and Butterfield and Mix may have some ideas around regulations because at some point and on our front, we're going to have to do something to make this work. So thank you again very much. And I'll just ask everyone to do a closing statement, but we look forward to working uh, with you in the future. Thanks. Well, I just want to associate myself with the remarks of Congresswoman Lee. We thank you so very much for the work that you do every day. What we do in Washington is is multifaceted, but what you do in your space is very concentrated on on technology and developing talent. And so, uh, thank you for for all of that. As I've sat here throughout the day, and it's been a long day. It's uh, uh, not over yet. We have one more visit <laughs> after this. Uh, but as I sat here listening to all of, all of the um, conversation, what I couldn't help but to think about was the small communities in my congressional district that are very low income, high numbers of African-American students, bright students who are in elementary school and middle school, and then when they get into ninth and 10th grade, they drop out of school. And many of these dropouts who end up in prison, many of them, could be sitting out here at Silicon Valley doing great things uh, here in, in the Valley if somebody had just embraced them and, and cultivated uh, their talent. 
And so someone said earlier that uh, if they don't get algebra one, that's the drop off point. Did, did you say that, Kennedy? Uh, t- tell me that one more time. Basically, they need to have completed yeah. algebra one by ninth grade. By ninth grade. If not, it's downhill from there. Okay, and so we need to get to these kids before the ninth grade. Yeah. I've got a lot of talent in my district that I think we can harness. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you so very much. Well, yeah. um, let me just say that um, it's unusual for members of Congress to sit this long and listen. Uh, Usually, we're talking about things we know and things we don't know. And I uh, could not help but think about the recent uh, Senate session that was held, you know, on the Senate side, when they had Mr. Zuckerberg come to talk about what was happening with uh, Facebook. And uh, the senators didn't even know what questions to ask. As a matter of fact, I'm told I didn't really see it, but it was described that um, senators were asking, how do y'all get paid? Uh, How do you make money? Well, that was a lesson. It it was generational uh, for the most part. And the members of Congress have just glorified in this high-tech industry and all that they do, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't have a lot of regulations, you know. And now that we've had some hacking into the DNC and uh, uh, we understand uh, how, some of us understand better how the ads work and how the targeting works, we're going to have to pay a lot more attention. Now, we should never threaten anybody, but I want to tell you, it's time for the high-tech industry to understand uh, that some of us are going to be about regulations. And in this conversation that we've got to have with them, perhaps we can have a conversation about diversity. Uh, You mentioned Jesse Jackson, and you're absolutely right. I didn't realize it had been three years since he'd been here. And uh, I know that he worked very hard. I don't know what happened as a result of all of Jesse Jackson's work. And you're absolutely right. He may not be able to continue, you know, to do what he was doing. But at least he had at least a reputation for pushing, for leveraging, for urging that would been helpful in the business community over the years. And so I think it's going to have to be more of that. Several things are going on in our country. The teachers are walking out. And we should all support them. We support them earning more money. They do want to have better training. They want to be treated better. And um, I think it is an important movement that I see happening. And I think if we are all about how we're going to train and develop and start at an early age, et cetera, it's in the education system. That's what it's all about. The young, young students from Parkland, they decided they were going to take action. And what I'm saying is this, a combination of what you see the teachers doing, the students from Parkland doing, they're trying some more tactics to put pressure where pressure, you know, needs to be put. And I think as public policymakers, we're going to have to use our tools also uh, to put some pressure where it needs to be done. You've touched on a lot here today, and I'm sitting here thinking about private post-secondary education and the money 
uh, that we have spent with the student loans on private post-secondary education. I'm not happy at all. And so what we have is um, for too many years, we've had private post-secondary education that have gotten, you know, billions of dollars now, I suppose. And, um, you know, it, it's take, it took us years to shut down Corinthians. You know what I'm saying? I want that money into community colleges. I want that money where uh, we can at least hold some people accountable for, you know, educating our children and, and getting them prepared. You talk about labor unions? Yeah. They're on their way out, practically. And it started some years ago with the air traffic controllers, and it has just gotten worse and worse and worse. And it has not been really dealt with, I don't believe, in the high-tech community in ways that perhaps could produce some more protections and some more benefits, et cetera. I, on the way here, I was reading about the robots and all that is happening, et cetera. And, you know, I have, um, well, I've been paying attention to some of the robotic issues, and um, particularly Tesla, but they just killed somebody, you know, a woman, you know, because they told her it had been perfected. But it has not been perfected. So, you know, human beings are always going to be needed in some capacity, either training robots in relation to them, expanding job opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. So, Barbara Lee, without, you know, going into all of this, when we talk about education, ladies and gentlemen, we got, Bar- we got Betsy DeVos, who is the education secretary. Many of the people in this administration serving as secretaries were placed there to destroy the very missions that were basically organized for those. You talk about EPA, you talk about education, what have you. So a lot of this has to do with public policymakers and what we're going to do to take back our house and what we're going to do to make sure that we correct some of the things that's happening now and may go on for a while. You know, the, the recent tax bill, the tax scam, the richest people in this country made out big time. Big corporations, Silicon Valley, from 35% to 21%. That's what their tax responsibilities have been reduced to. Middle class people and the people you're talking about, there's a housing crisis in this country. People cannot afford to pay first and last month's rent and security to get into a place. And, you know, whether we're talking about San Francisco, this area, or Los Angeles, New York, what have you, there is a housing crisis in this country, and it's going to take public policy and people who care about people having a safe and decent place to live to make it right. And so these are big problems, and they're complicated problems. And what you're talking about is, you know, the future of this country. You know, where are we going? What are we doing? Out of all of this, I I certainly was so pleased to hear you say that you have 650 employees, that a combination of uh, support from Google and some other people for these people coming out of, uh, you know, who've been incarcerated, uh, because that is a big problem about what happens to them when they hit the streets. So we hear you, and I'm glad that you had us here to just sit and listen. You know, I work with and, you know, have the fortune to be paying a lot of attention to millennials. And they have taught me in meetings that I put together to have an open mic so that we can just listen to people. And so today was a good experience for all of us. And thank you for everything.
thing that you do. But remember, those industries that you talk about saying they should do it this way or they should do it this way, and why don't they? They're not going to just volunteer <laughs> to do what you want them to do. They're not going to decide. And I want to tell you, I am sympathetic to what you're saying, but I want to tell you, I have no sympathy for a huge company that's a multi-billion dollar company that can't figure out how to bring people in. You know what I'm saying? That's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem uh, that they, somebody could sit in the back room uh, one night and just solve. So uh, <laughs> let, me, let me just say, I want you to keep doing what you're doing. Any opportunities that you have to inform us, about what you see that we could be doing something with in public policy. Any opportunities you have to encourage young people who want to be more active, who decide that maybe a couple of hundred want to go visit somebody on a particular, encourage them to do it because it's going to take all of this. Otherwise, you know, we could end up going backwards. Thank you very much. Thank you. I want to join my colleagues in first thanking you for what you do on an everyday, regular basis. It is absolutely essential. And though you are based in California, as I was sitting here, I'm just thinking of the massive job that we have to do because it's virtually in every state of this union. There's work to be done. I mean, starting with making sure that we have a strong public education system that is not antiquated. I think about just listening to you and everything that is going tech, because you're right, everything is in tech. And I think about our educational system as it's set up. It was really set up when we were basically just an agricultural economy. And we have not changed things to move them around to deal with the realities of today and the problem that we have on top of it is the kids that you're talking about here are not just competing with kids here. They're not competing with kids just in California or just in the United States. They have to compete with kids on a global basis. This thing is the way the world is much smaller now than it's ever been. And just listening to you where opportunities and jobs can be is almost any place in the world because that's what we have and kids are coming to look for these opportunities. So our kids have to be able to compete with everyone and they have the ability if the doors are open to them. I'm listening to you uh, talking about all of the other jobs and how we're going to make sure that they have health care and basic rights and make sure that you know, that they're not discriminated against. And being a contractor, that's going to hurt where we're going to be in 20 years, because that's where we're heading, but we're not thinking about that. It tells me I better start thinking about that as a legislator, because we do see the number of individuals in labor getting smaller and smaller and smaller. What you mentioned at the end, you know, we've got so many people now, not only young people, but you talked about those that wanted to, or that needed to be retrained or uptrained. A lot of those individuals, you know, whose jobs are gone because of technology, they have mortgages to pay. 
and they're still trying to put their kids through school, and if they're going to be able to take a job that's being created, how are they going to pay for additional training? They need to be paid while they're getting that additional training, knowing that they're going to get locked into a job. And I've happened to see some of what they've done in certain countries in Europe, for example, to try to make sure that there is no displacement. They will train individuals. They know that the company is shifting. They know that the job, so they will train the people while it's shifting. They continue to get paid while they so they never lose out and they continue to support their families. We're not thinking about that. We're not doing that in this country. And yes, you know, what Maxine talked about of trying to figure this out, we, you know, these fintech companies that's coming on, how do you regulate to make sure that they're participating in the proper way? I mean, we've got to rethink even some legislation that we had or regulation that we had because it's outdated. And we're doing that now, for example, with the Community Reinvestment Act. And how do we make it more relevant today so that the investment is not only, yes, we want the investment to be in some businesses, but some of that investment should be in some of the community schools. You get credit for community, and it should be with a strong dollar amount that has to be in there in order for it to count. So this has been tremendous for me. And lastly, I'll just say this. The ability to talk to one another, as you talked about, I know that's tremendously important. And my, in New York, part of the problem that I have as a legislator, as a legislator, is as opposed to talking to one another, everybody's competing for the same amount of money or competing for the same thing and not knowing and organizing and having it so that you, one, knows what the other's doing and trying to figure out how to work together. So that suggestion is, is absolutely right on point in my estimation. Again, thank you for all that you do. Thank you, Ruben, for being such an excellent moderator. And I want to just say, uh, I hope that um, out of this meeting, you all will stay together and collaborate and keep us in the loop. But also, I have one small assignment that I mentioned earlier. In spite of the fact that uh, we know this administration and the Department of Education and their disdain, really, for public education, I'd like to get your thoughts on the in for us in terms of input into what you would want to see that would make sense for this new 50 million, whether it's teacher training, you know, whether it's uh, entrepreneurial development for young, young students, whatever you think makes sense, it would help us as we develop our approach to the Department of Education for this funding. Thank you very much again. Thank you. Uh, we're going to be doing a picture outside with the quiz, so please. Let's gather right here. Okay.